Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Godzilla starring Akira Takarada, Momoko Kochi, and Takashi Shimura. Story by Shiguro Kamaya, screenplay by Takeo Moroto and Ishiro Honda, and directed by Ishiro Honda. How did I do there, Matt, with the names? Spot on. That's <laughs> perfect. Thank you. Phonetically perfect. Welcome to back to Rice Smile Films. We're staying in the realm of Mr. Godzilla. Uh, last week we had Godzilla versus Kong, and today we're kind of taking it back to its roots, to the very first uh, original version, 1954's Godzilla, also known as Gojira. Uh we just finished watching it, Matt. This was you had seen this movie before, but I think the version we the Raymond Burr version. So you had never seen this iteration of it. So I'm very interested to get your your take on it. But initial thoughts. Um, that was a really good watch, different than what I'd remembered. And even that Raymond Burr version goes back to Saturday afternoon monster mayhem mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on dialing for dollars or whatever it might have been. Yeah. Way back when. So it's been a, a long time. We'll get into this a little bit, but the the difference in time and the just straight Toyo Toho version mm-hmm. versus the United version. Yeah. Or universal version. Yeah. I'm just gonna say this. Yeah. Raymond Burr's in the American version which is adding content to the film because they have to find a way to work him in as the reporter. Who, a new character, yeah. And somehow it's 12 minutes shorter. than so, uh, 16 minutes shorter. So they add a character and a whole side component to this, and the movie's 16 minutes shorter than its original Toho version. Crazy. Let, let's break it down. It's funny that, you know, the kind of the space we've been in has been original versions versus their alternate versions. Yeah. It's kind of been the rise smile motto as of late. You're right. It has been, hasn't it? But real quick, we have a Patreon shout out here. A new person jumping on the bad bandwagon. Right. This is Carissa Sanchez. Thank you for joining the rise smile hall of fame. Here's to you, Carissa. Cheers. And we just did poltergeist watch along this mm-hmm. week, Matt. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. It I'm going to ask you one more time. Yeah. Toby Hooper or Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. I'm Toby gonna- Hooper and toe Spielberg mostly overseeing all of it. I'm going to go a director by the name of Toby Spielberg. (laughs) What a crazy conversation. But like, yeah, if you want to kind of hear that whole breakdown on Poltergeist and the curse of Poltergeist and Joe Beth Williams, and just a bunch of crazy stuff. What sold it to me on that was you've getting the sound where Steven Spielberg is talking about from the director's chair, how he wanted it to look. So I've never heard a director say, this is how I wanted it to look, but I didn't. And then I'm going to sit over here and and be non-compliant to how this film is being made. No, exactly. Non-compliant. If you want to join the Rye Smile uh, patronage, go to patreon.com slash Films. And then we also have merch, too. Go to tpublic.com, check out Rye Smile Films, and, you know, grab a T-shirt, grab some mugs, grab a COVID mask, grab a phone case. I got to get on that phone case. I got kind of a weird obsession with buying phone cases. You do. The one you have today is good, though. I actually bought a new one on, on Redbubble, which, Matt, don't go on Redbubble because it's it's dangerous. It's never coming out? It's a... Uh, it's a Scantron. You know the test? Yeah. Because I, I had this vision of Scantron. I was like, man, I, I totally for, for remember that test, and I doubt it's done very much today. That's awesome. But it's the form in a phone case. The green little squares. <laughs> I can't wait to show you. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> 
Well, cheers to that. Let's get this started with our flight question. Break that down, Mr. Band Guy. The Godzilla March? <laughs> Give me the major, what's the major instrument there? Oh, that's got to be, that's, you know, your trumpet. That's, yep. again, your horns is very Godzilla heavy. But, you know, that theme's interesting because it is a little more light and jovial compared to some of the other music in this in this film. But I, I always equate that. That's like Godzilla on, on the prowl, Godzilla mm-hmm. on the war path. Is, yep. That theme will show up in the series time and time again. Why don't you go to us and hit, and hit us with that flight question? Taking the story that we told a little bit a few minutes ago about the American version versus the Japanese version, I mm-hmm. thought we'd stay in that space. Mm-hmm. And this isn't best, but this is recommended. So this is three Japanese films not having to have ever been adapted to an American studio system. Can be, but doesn't have to be. That maybe the Rye audience should know about. Yeah, this is the Rice Smile homework for the week. Rice Smile homework. So yeah. three Japanese films. So our best recommendations. So number, best Rex. Number three. Number three. Excellent. You want I, me to go first, or you want to go first? Uh, I'll, go, I'll go first. Okay. I imagine this director might show up on uh, on your on your countdown. <laughs> you think? Yeah. But uh, initials AK. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I think he's very important in terms of you know the Japanese film landscape and i feel like any if if you call yourself a film cinephile film aficionado or just lover of movies i think you have to watch one of his films at some point in your life yep i think it's just the you know rite of passage Mm -hmm. the one i'm gonna pick a little bit outside of the the realm it's actually one of his more modern films that he's made because everything's usually set in feudal japan and whatnot it's a film called high and low Mm -hmm. and it stars his i own this Stars his mainstay, Toshiro Mufuni, who was kind of his partner through all of his films. And they actually had a big falling out towards the end of their run there. Oh, really? That's a story for another day. Huh. But this story is amazing because it's part procedural crime, kidnapping, film, part, you know, character study with him. So just real brief synopsis. He runs a shoe factory. Mm-hmm. These mobsters want to run him out of business. And so their ploy is to kidnap his son, hold him for ransom. And they kidnap the wrong boy. They actually kidnap the son of his like butler's, his butler's son, because he's a very rich man. So his son's safe. So what is this man going to do with all the money and power in Japan? Is he going to pay this other boy the same kind of credence he would his own son? And there's a big morality tear at play, a, a tale at play there. But the procedural aspect of that is. So captivating. I equate it to something like Zodiac or, you know, Manhunter, you know, those great procedural sh- uh, films. You got to check out High and Low. It's it's very different than a lot of things Kurosawa did. It's, he stayed in that samurai space for such a long period of his career. But I really like that he kind of stepped out of that for this one. So High and Low, check it out. Excellent choice. Mm-hmm. That director will also appear on my list, but not for this first selection. Okay. This is a bit more modern. I say bit we're not talking in the last five years or anything. It's hard not to talk about Japanese films and pay some attention or acknowledgement to their influence with horror. Mm-hmm. And especially with you and I, it's a sh- horrors coming up this week. No way. <laughs> there right. There you go. I loved the ring. Mm-hmm. That's the American version. The Japanese version is 
all the more compelling and original. That's Ringu. It's good. See it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of difference. It's the same idea. You watch this video and it means that you have a certain amount of time before you die if you can't uncover the riddle. But I think the compelling piece in the Japanese original version is there's a bit more of a fourth wall breaking as you're watching the video too. I think it's a little bit more conscious of the audience's role in the story because it's sort of happening to the audience. Now it might've been in a film, film proper like theater or maybe DVD, but the same kind of thing is kind of working here. And I think there's a creepier element to that. It plays a little bit more into the Japanese like folklore too, uh, like Japanese ghost stories, which is kind of a very fascinating realm that they've made a lot of really good films in. Uh, I'm with you. I, 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 I kind of, maybe this is a hot take and maybe we'll do this on the show. And I think the ring, the Naomi Watts version is one of the most overrated films I've ever seen in my entire life. Wow. Uh, because it, it that to- is a hot take. It totally rode the coattails of what you just talked about. It set the formula and I think just handled it a lot better within its own kind of, you know, native telling of the story. So that w- yeah, the other one's not, it's not one I go back to frequently and I know it's hot because I know a lot of people like that film. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay, good start. Number two for you. Number two for me, you know, we did a little animated thing with Pixar, so I don't usually exist a lot in the animated space, but there is one studio in Japan that, you know, has premier dominance on a lot of the stories they tell, and that's Studio Ghibli. And the film I'm going to actually talk about, I believe it's the second film they ever did. It's called Grave of the Fireflies. Mm. So this is much kind of similar to Godzilla. This is uh, just like months after World War II. It's like uh, like the last months of World War II from the Japanese perspective as it follows these two siblings kind of going through war-torn Japan. And it's all the firebombing and the raids. And, man, you don't think like these like animated films like would be able to just kind of hit you in the heartstrings. But they, they're able to weave a tale, and I don't want to spoil it, but... It's incredibly somber and so poignant uh, that you, it's hard to find that in animation when it's not, you know, Disney or Pixar. So I, I got to recommend that one. You know, I haven't seen a lot of their works. Like there's a few I haven't seen that are well regarded, but that one's always been one I've always come back to. Uh, really well crafted film. Grave of the Fireflies. I've never even heard of that. Mm-hmm. I'll have to take it out. Yeah. Okay. Number two for me. The director that you mentioned is going to make an appearance. This is Akira Kurosawa, and the film is Rashomon. So there is a terrible crime that is perpetuated, involves a murder and a rape, and it is his take on justice as we see how that plays out through four different perspectives that are involved in that incident. It's fascinating in each one of them has a very compelling story. And I think one of the things that I like about it is when you and I build bad guys, Mm -hmm. we try to make bad guys likable or understandable when it comes to plight. And I think in some regards, this hits a note that matters or sounds really good to me because it does that. And each one of these players in this film, these four people that they focus on, ends up having a very important and understandable role on their take in Akira Kurosawa's version of Justice. You ever seen that one? That film's great. It is. 
that whole era of him right there between that and there's Seven Samurai and Yojimbo, Redbeard, uh, The Hidden Fortress, all films. Star Wars? Yeah, that essentially influenced big Hollywood or spaghetti Western productions. Yeah. Uh, the West kind of, you know, East going into the West. Great choice. Thank yeah. you. I mean, yeah, you got to check out a Kurosawa film. Like, my big regret with him is that Criterion put out a box set of all his films like 10 years ago. And I didn't buy it when it came out mm. uh, and it long out of print and it's like crazy expensive on eBay, but that would have been like a great thing to have just like his whole Ubra. Awesome. Number two, number one, number one for me. I'm also going to go whore, but it's almost more comedy whore. This is 1977. The film is called house. Uh, also known as Hausu in Japan. This is a haunted house film Matt. we have to do this movie on the show. One oh, of these days. Okay. If you want to watch it, actually, it's been on HBO Max since the platform started back in like last April or May. Mm -hmm. So you can watch it right now, but I'll just spin it for you quick. It's about a schoolgirl traveling with her six classmates to her ailing aunt's country home where they come face to face with supernatural events as the girls are one by one devoured by the home. Awesome. I can't even, words can't even do this thing justice. It's a technicolor miasma of madness and craziness. And there's things that happen in this that you won't believe are happening. It's a total trip. Like it's, you, you trip out while you're watching it. It's completely insane, but it is a blast from beginning to end. Hmm. That does sound interesting. It, it's wild. Man, I've I, never even heard I, of that. I can't, I'll show you a trailer after we finish recording. It can't be, it can't be explained. You just have to watch it. Well, if that's on HBO Max, I may give that a burn this week. Mm -hmm. It's nuts. It's completely insane. Hungry House. Yeah. Cool. But it's like it's not like off-putting like it like like uh like a Rob Zombie film or like the Poughkeepsie tapes. It's more like it's 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 you get you have a little fun with it. It's it's more kind of like Sam Raimi-esque. Okay. Yeah. So that's my number one. Good choice. Yeah. So my number one goes to an iteration of Elizabethan literature as told by the director that we just mentioned. That story is King Lear, the director then, or the writer obviously being Shakespeare, but also aptly handled in the hands of Mr. Kurosawa. The name of the film is Ran. Mm -hmm. This is feudal Japan mixed with rot family drama and a beautifully read movie. That's the best way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not a fan of Shakespeare or particularly King Lear, this version of this film takes any piece of that that you didn't like and completely turns it around in a way that every shot is beautifully painted on this canvas of white with reds and blues. Some green, but lots and lots of red. And I don't just mean blood. It's just red, red, red. Mm -hmm. You have to see Ran. If you haven't watched it, that's my number one recommendation. Yeah. It's a little bit in the sleepy place with Kurosawa's films, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be. It is a masterpiece. So that's my number one. Good Ran. choice. Have you ever seen it? I have seen Ran. Yeah. I need to see it again. You know, I like, I want to see a lot of these, these films again. Uh, he also dabbled in, in Shakespeare before in another film called Throne of Blood, which is Macbeth. Yeah. Yep. So he, it's a space he's familiar with. I, I kind of just, I love how he adapted stuff and then people saw it and would just be like, that would make a great film over here, but like in a different form. And then you get like the Magnificent Seven, Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, just like a lot of just interesting, you know, aspects. 
Another kind of just honorable mention real quick was Aikiru from Kurosawa, which stars uh, the director, uh, the actor that played Dr. Uh, Sarvazawa. Uh, no, uh, no. I want to say Namaste, but... No, no, no. Dr. Y- y- Yakume mm-hmm. in, in this one, who is dying of cancer, and the film lets you know right from the beginning that this guy has like two months to live. So you know he's going to die. Um, uh, he's terminal, and it's about what he's going to do to spend his kind of last waking life where he's like essentially wasted his whole life working at the worst job ever. He has a bad relationship with his son. And what's he going to do to make amends in the meantime? It's an entirely heartbreaking film. And again, set in a modern day with Kurosawa, which is the films that we, the other ones we mentioned are all kind of feudal Japan era. Interesting. Yeah. So honorable, great choices. I mean, you called and told me and I was like, I already know two of those I'm putting on. And it was, it was high and low and, and house. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Perfect. Let's get right to it, and let's get to our review breakdown of Godzilla. Here we go. Where does Godzilla's roar rank in the all-time film sound effects for you? Boy, it's at the top. You know what they're able to do really well mm-hmm. is not the the scream, the mm-hmm. but that guttural from the bottom of Godzilla's stomach up through that almost sounds like someone revving their engine on their motorcycle. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what it feels like. What's he revving up for? What's coming up from that guttural sound? Oh, yeah. It. Uh, it's unmistakable. It's up at the top. Entirely shocking. And I always like how it's used in these films. It's always off screen first. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's always like you hear it and you're like, Oh God, like what's on the horizon. And then it's him. They, they cut to him, but I always wanted to know how they did this. So I did a little deep dive this week. So it's actually the composer, Akira Ufanabe, uh, put on a, like just like a big rubber glove, probably like maybe like a, like a scrubbing glove, like a Mm -hmm. toilet cleaning glove. And, uh, rub the strings of a contrabass so it's just you know grabbing that rubber grating against you know you know violin Mm -hmm. string so to speak and then they would speed it up and lower the pitch and that's kind of what made the noise which is awesome like that's such a cool way to like make a roar that is instantly iconic the way it's echoes and is hollow sounding but you know what it reminded me of today Mm -hmm. was the warning that john williams created for for shark for jaws you, it's coming, and as the speeds up or gets louder, you know the proximity between you and it is decreasing. Mm-hmm. That's happened in the last two shows, too. I think that happened a little bit in Poltergeist with some of the sound and the lightning that we talked about in Thunder. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, no, it's up there. Um, and it, I don't know if it suits him because I'm so used to seeing it with Godzilla or it just is so org- organically natural that it fits well. But either way, at the end of the day... And that is Godzilla's theme song, if there ever was mm-hmm. one. Excellent. As much as I like the march, that is his theme song. Oh yeah, that's his. Just his his sound. His the 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 march that he that he marches to. Let's talk about how this film starts out. This is yeah. all I think a really interesting path to get to the inevitable reveal and emergence of Godzilla because it's all kind of done. Like I said, it's off screen. 
It is, you know, done with sound. So we actually start with this Japanese fishing vessel that is, you know, they're just kind of going about their business until these just like lights from the ocean emerge that just eviscerate these boats. And then it's just not just one boat. It's another fishing boat. It's the rescue boat. It's this boat. And I've always really appreciated it. I mean, maybe probably overplayed as the series progresses with the kind of public response and the military response. So what do we do? What do we do? But like here, like they're in an interesting playground because they've never seen this thing before. They don't know what's under there. So the immediate panic of how are we losing these boats? What's going on there? We have some survivors. They can't even tell us what's happening. Uh, the kind of the Coast Guard response. And I've always really liked, you know, just like them, like charting longitude, la- uh, latitude, you know, where these things are going missing. It adds a kind of like a, a nice pace, a high intensity pace to finding the answers of what's happening. One of the things the geography of Japan presents in this is no escape other than waterways or through the air. In 1954, the water was going to be more prevalent, certainly than air travel, although it does appear in this movie. Mm-hmm. Every bit of commerce, most of the theater the, or theater of festivals all revolves around that so that idea. So if this thing lives in the water, essentially you're trapped on a rock with nowhere to go. And so to get by or through or around to safety, you have to go right through the heart of the bad guy's kingdom, which is the water. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit because, yeah, that was interesting the way it's played out because these are commercial fishing vessels, the import-export of, you know, Japan's economy at this point. And there's some interesting lines that just get kind of thrown about. We're like, well, unless we can get past this blockade of sorts, we're losing ships. We can't get stuff in. We can't get stuff out. So we're losing money here. I mean, there's that long line at, like, whatever kind of government building that is about – these fishermen that are upset that they can't make a living wage because their ships are being destroyed and they can't get anything out. Um, I think that's interesting. You know, we're looking at it from not just uh, a disaster level, but like the economic level too of what it's already starting to do to this, this little, this little country here. It gives you plausible deniability to why you have to continue in the actions that you continue. And we talk about that so much. Yeah. It's Jaws inspired or inspired to create the same environment that exists in Jaws and Amity Bay. Mm -hmm. If we don't get some commerce going here, we're shut down. Amity is a summer town. That means summer dollars. (laughs) If you can't fish and you can't transport your fish, and that is your single lifeline for commerce, what are you going to do? So you have to keep going. Yeah. Well, there's a... (coughs) Excuse me. Oh, the bourbon got to me. Sam Houston. The... There's a couple things at play. We're losing ships. Mm-hmm. We can't get them out. There's also no fish. There you go. Because That's when we go to the Odo Island there, uh, the coastline, they're uh, just a little sh- kind of sh- uh, fishing town, and they bring in their trapping nets for the day, and they're empty. And so there's no fish to catch because something in there is feeding on these fish. This is not going to have the same impact on American audiences that it would on Japanese audiences mm-hmm. because overfishing their waters is a definite concern yeah. in that area and has been and always will be. Mm-hmm. So if that's what's happening and you're bringing this home with what we're going to get to, which is hydrogen and the atomic era mm-hmm. mixed with overfishing and lack of commerce, there is some very big themes that are being brought to the silver screen for the people that are seeing this film in Japan 
that I think aren't quite as prevalent for the American audience still work and you understand it. Sure. Those are two huge events. Big time. You take Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then you take Mm -hmm. we don't have any fish left, which is something that we struggle with on a seasonal basis. I think you brought up an interesting stat when you were watching the film. You did some research in some fanboy website. How many pounds of fish does Godzilla need to eat a day just to say it's salient? It's, yeah, it's something crazy. It's like it's like twenty thousand pounds of fish just to sustain his large frame. Like it's a lot of fish. If he was real, so to speak, yeah, that's a ton of fish. So yeah, if the supply is running out, obviously Godzilla as a feeding machine, being and we'll get to kind of like why he's walking around now, but. It's survival of the fittest for him too. I mean, yep. he's in it to survive. I'm I'm eating all the resources in the ocean. I'm going on to land, baby, and I'm going to go feed on stuff there. It's going to be not not as plentiful as what's in the ocean, but his even motivation, dare I say that Godzilla has an arc is, you know, is to feed and to feast. When we talked about Wonder Woman 84, we sort of posed the question on why in the hell that was said in 1984 because it didn't do anything to further the story. And frankly, mm-hmm. the plan that Maxwell Lord launches, which is satellite takeover of the world, plays better in 2021 than it does in 84 to begin with. Yeah. So that's a poor use of environment to make your movie um, more layered. If you take this, which is the first wreckage of the boat and then two salvage or rescue missions from two other subsequent boats that also meet the same fate. The environment's working in a much more significant and organically smart way. That is mammals, man are not meant to go in the water without the use of machinery. Godzilla is really comfortable. And in fact lives in a cave. We'll find out later in some trench in this same water area. So you had a terrible disadvantage just by that alone and then add to it size. So you can have your little boats and your little guns. Mm-hmm. And mostly it's like trying to knock down the Great Wall of China used on perfect. I'm using that example specifically yeah. with a dirt clotter or a BB gun. Mm-hmm. You are up against it and it's larger and longer and stronger and many more biggers than you can possibly muster. And you can't get away mm-hmm. because it's water all around you. And that's what provides you a means to an end and travel. It's almost like, yeah, like the weapon aspect is, is, is crazy because every subsequent Godzilla film, they, it's the same thing. It's like, hey, that ain't going to work pals, but it mm-hmm. almost seems like the only thing that could work that, you know, without the recollection of this thing's a radioactive walking monster would be an atomic or H bomb weapon. And that's the last thing the Japanese people want to use against this thing. You know what I mean? Right. Even if they even had access to one, which they probably, I don't know if they did at this time in in history, if they were building their own, but the ramifications of them actually going through the horrors of that power is kind of the only thing that could potentially stop this thing. You know what I mean? A tank's not going to stop Godzilla. Right. So you're going to use what took you down to defeat this thing that's about to take you down again. Yeah, that's a... Damned if you, damned if you don't. You're you're backed into a corner there. And then the other thing I would add to that, back to the commercial piece of this and the fishing and the importance of fishing. If you decide to H-bomb Godzilla in the water, then you might, you might, let me heavy emphasis on might, destroy it. But you're certainly going to destroy any means of commerce because the fish in the water mm-hmm. won't survive either. Nope. So they've done yeah. right. They've done a great job of painting them into a corner with no way out. Mm-hmm. So can I bring up one point? Yeah. 
I was going to talk about the raft bit for a minute. Oh, we, yeah. Okay, so. Can I talk about what that was inspired by, actually, yeah, real quick? Mm-hmm. So there was an actual incident. It was the the Dago, uh, I knew I was going to forget, Dago Fukuruu Maru. It was an actual Japanese fishing vessel that actually swam into contaminated waters off of Bikini Atoll. And this actually happened to them. Not like their ship wasn't destroyed by Godzilla, but like the boat came back and they were all irradiated. Oh, wow. This just commercial fishing vessel. And it kind of became a thing of like, we don't know they're testing out there. They're not telling us of all these tests they're doing out in the middle of the ocean. So how are we to know that like we're kind of just parading into radioactive waters? It, and, and that was so that was part inspiration. They also wanted to make a monster movie. Sure. But that was helped their influence on like what type of monster movie to make. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Bikini Atoll Island's really important for American fashion too. Yep. I'm not trying to be funny, like the truth. <laughs> After we have an angry public wanting answers and a little bit of hope that's garnered from two wreckage of ships only to then find out that there's no survivors from any of the three boats that have we have seen in the water destroyed by a really good special effect. <laughs> this explosive irradiated look coming out of the water and engulfing anything in proximity that sets the boat on fire as it's in the water. Kudos to the technical and the art design team on this and the special effects for pulling that off because for Mm -hmm. 1954, some of this stuff doesn't age well, but I'm not going to complain too hard about the special effects in this film. Well, we have to think back to 1954. It's hard to find a movie other than like the creature from the black lagoon or maybe the thing from the other another world or the original world, like the special effects heavy, they weren't common. Like so, to do everything that they do, the suit, the the pyrotechnics, the miniatures, like a lot of craft went into making this look the way it does. Back to what I was saying a minute, because mm-hmm. you just put a bug in my ear. Yeah, War of the Worlds is an interesting one. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, you know that's a really strong statement. What about the day the earth stood still for that little bit when Klaatu Incorporated starts to eviscerate some of the, even that ship is pretty ordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Just the little and that inclined plane ramp that comes out of the bottom. Yeah, that one's fairly minimal compared to some ah, of yeah. the other ones, yeah. So, okay, let's agree that this is an ambitious special effects film that they're taking on. Okay, that being said, what I love about the sole survivor from these three attacks on these fishing and and shipping boats is he is set on this raft and luckily drifts ashore to a place where there is a legend of this terrible monster. Mm -hmm. And do you know what they have decided is the best course to quell the violence of this monster? This is so telling to me and so smart. Mm -hmm. The sacrifice of a young girl and dancing. I am not belittling anybody's festival or traditions or customs, but if you think putting on a mask mm-hmm. and doing some little dance next to a bonfire is going to sate Godzilla mm-hmm. with one single girl, which would be three pounds of food, I, maybe 30 pounds of food, yeah. I don't know nothing. Yeah, It shows the anterior position of mankind and frankly how useless we and most of the machinery of we is when opposed Mm -hmm. with mother nature yeah and the other thing too finally godzilla shows up in this because it's our fault yeah our being mankind yeah 
he was happy just in his little cave by himself. So your technology brought him in and it also provides no answer to how to get rid of him until maybe later. Mm -hmm. And so you're reduced to an island, almost essentially for a lack of a better term, but a little bit more American proper luau like event Mm -hmm. that culminates in the sacrifice of a little girl. Yeah. It's hard at this point, and you brought it up, mm-hmm. not to say, hey, mankind, the hell with you. Mm-hmm. You maybe deserve what you get a little bit. Yeah? I like that sequence, too, because I like how they talk about him in legend. And I love how, like, a lot of folklore stuff, it's it's always stuff that's, you know, not based on fact. It's stories, yeah. urban legends passed down from generation to generation. That's what this feels like. This sea creature that when there's no more fish left in the sea, he'll come to land and he'll come for us. So what we do is we offer the sacrifice like you talked about. But that's all bullshit. I mean, that's all, all of it. That's all just, you know, stories passed down and tradition passed down. They've never seen this thing before until it actually shows up. So I like the the generational story being passed down. And there's something, and I'm going to talk about this later and because it talks about a little bit about one of my good friends growing up and then how I came to see this version of the film, which was kind of a big moment for me, actually. I, mean, I like this thing because it is so ridiculous. It's preposterous because it's not going to do anything, but it's it's what they know right now. They don't know the real reality of what's in the ocean until it shows up and lays waste to this island. Let's talk about real quick, because last week we had a big problem with every human that occupied the screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They were uninteresting. They were cookie cutter, Millie Bobby Brown's glassy eyes, Alexander Skarsgård barking things when he's not in charge. Melodrama. Let's talk about four of the characters in in this thing real quick. We have Ogata, who is with the Coast Guard. We have Emiko and her father, um, Dr. Dr. Yamani. Yamani. Who is a Kurosawa staple. He's actually the final samurai that he's like the Mm -hmm. the wise sage samurai in Seven Samurai. You're right. And then Dr. Uh, Sarazawa. There's an interesting love triangle going on between these three, which is like, hey, what's going on here? And like, it's interesting because, you know, it's a monster film, but like, we got to kind of care about the humans too, to an extent. And so Agatha and Emiko are in a relationship, but Emiko is engaged to Dr. Sarazawa. The two men don't see eye to eye. They're afraid to break up the relationship. Uh, Ogata still needs to go to Dr. Yamani to ask for her hand in marriage. It's all messed up. (laughs) Super dysfunctional. Very dysfunctional. And everyone's afraid to address the elephant in the room. Like, no one wants... They're all just beating around it. Emiko won't talk to Sarazawa about this guy she's seeing. They're just brushing it under the rug. (laughs) And it's played in a different way, which the name of the film is Godzilla, so they're going to let that be the star of the film, Mm -hmm. as opposed to last week when all of the other elements took up most of the space on the screen, even when Godzilla and Kong were on that. Mm -hmm. It's really underplayed. It's addressed. But when we finally come to understanding the relationship between Yumiko and Ogata and where Sarazawa fits in that, it's with a little bit of labor from the audience to sort of figure out, oh my gosh, are they, they are a couple. Mm -hmm. They're not just friends. And oh, she's already promised or at least engaged in some, maybe not formally, but in a relationship with Sarazawa. Mm -hmm. How do you get out? And he sort of seems rather unstable anyway. Yeah, he's in a relationship with science. With science (laughs) and the oxygen destroyer. (sighs) That's handled masterfully well. Mm -hmm. And it gives the characters, the human element, something to give a damn about. And I wanted to say before we get too far, because I'll forget if I don't say this. go ahead. 
the human reaction to the destruction that Godzilla lays, whether that be human or capital, is entirely appropriate. That little girl who is in that triage center oh, well, we'll watching play, her mother. We'll play that later. That is so well done. That's rough. It's really rough. It's kind of it's really hard to watch. The other woman who's on the patio of that saying, We're about to go meet daddy. We're gonna play that too. Holy shit, Jesse. <laughs> That's so far mm-hmm. and beyond better than what we saw last week. It's yeah. laughable that in 2021, that was your version of what this should have been, which is just the human experience. Mm-hmm. Shame on this film from last week. Yeah. Good, good. I'm glad you brought that up. So Yamani and crew, they go, they, they form like a Godzilla task force <laughs> to like find out what's going on here. Let's go to this island, investigate. And the second they bring up the Geiger counters and like you, you can instantly just see the worry in these people like this thing's mm-hmm. radioactive. It's it's showing up. It's this is dangerous. We're all irradiated now at this point. Some two million year old arthropod on his foot. Oh, yeah. The little trilobite. And then the first emergence of the creature here uh, from the hill. They're like, what is that? What's over the hill? I just saw it. Here it comes. I'd shit my pants. <laughs> Heck yeah. Oh my God. Like the, there's something about the, the, you're, you're right. The John Williams, da, 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 it's his footsteps. Yeah. It's the, what is that? What's approaching us? And then as he emerges and they take a good time of like waiting to show the full monster in this film. I mean, we get the light under the ocean, we get the roar and then we get, you know, that typhoon and that's just more sound. We get the footsteps here and then the footprints in the sand and then half of his body over the hill. It's not until like probably 45 minutes in that he comes and destroys that train. We get the full effect. So they really build up to it, I think, in a nice way. But let's talk about, you know, Dr. Yamani's discoveries and then how this thing was awoken. Because I think one of the misconceptions about Godzilla is that he was a subterranean lizard that Mm -hmm. was created by the advent of the atomic bomb, that the radiation grew him to this size. Godzilla canon, Godzilla lore, is that he was actually, this is a subterranean... Holdover dinosaur. Yeah, holdover. Like, there's... From the Jurassic area, Cretaceous area, uh, one of them. Yeah, Cretaceous. Cretaceous era. Well, he says Jurassic, too. It's one of the eras. Uh, He makes a good point. I mean, you know, the ocean is so vast and so undiscovered because it is so untravelable that, you know, they make the case that in these fissures that these creatures could lay dormant. And, you know, all the H-bomb and atomic bomb testing that takes place in the oceans could have very well woken this thing up. And that's why it's irradiated. So it's not a mutated creature. It's a holdover from the past. It's a creature at a time. He's a fish out of water. (laughs) (laughs) Well said, exactly. (laughs) Not only that, but he's able to harness Mm -hmm. the power of a hydrogen bomb. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that later because I think the way they use his scales is so well done in this. Mm -hmm. But... Not only do we have a two million year old animal that has been awoken and is furious, but it's entirely 
capable and compatible with the atomic age that we're in the middle of in 1954. Can we talk about his reveal for just a minute? Sure. When we see Godzilla's top third over the hill in this film, you get an idea on how big he is, but you don't fully know because you're not really sure with any context how big that hill is and there's no scale with humans. Mm -hmm. It's a really different approach than what we might have seen, say, Frankenstein. Yeah. When the monster's revealed in Frankenstein, we get him walking up the stairs backwards mm-hmm. and then a very grand reveal as he turns around and we are, here's the monster. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. This is teasing and you get a look at his face, which is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. But you don't exactly know, at least I don't, exactly know the scale of him because he's still behind the hill. Mm-hmm. And is that a hill that's the size of a mountain or is that just a, a hill hill? <laughs> So we don't really see that until we get the scale of the buildings when he descends on Yokohama and Tokyo a bit later. Yep. It's an interesting approach because they tease you enough from the illuminated water to the size of the foot to the, was it trilopod? What the hell is that thing called? The trilobite. Tri- there you go, trilobite. Yeah. To the top third maybe. Mm-hmm. It's really baited and set up, and they do a good job of featuring. And it's it's just directorial choice and how you want to do it, and they can both work because Frankenstein works too. But it's a really interesting reveal of our movie star. I, I loved it. Absolutely, yeah. Because uh, it's nice and slow, and it's paced out, and when we get it, we're like, yes, now we're here. Now we can we see what he's here what he's here to do. When the humans see him and hear him, and they're running away from him down the hill, you know what they choose to show then, which is really interesting, mm-hmm. is their feet over the hill mostly, kind of like Godzilla's feet over Mm -hmm. the beach in a few moments. Yeah. So we don't even get the scale of the humans on the hill. We just get, you better run. Yeah. I think that's great. And And super, super smart because, you know, it keeps you interested, like whether it's the Hulk or a werewolf or Frankenstein's monster or Godzilla, Jason and Halloween. Mm -hmm. Or you mean Michael? I mean Michael, sorry. I think Jason too. Jason too. Yeah. The reveal of that character when it's the aberration of nature is such an important moment in the film. And if you give it away too early, Mm -hmm. then you've taken that out of the viewer's interest. And so you have to be very cognizant of when you choose to do that. And I'm going to give Honda a lot of present or a lot of present, a lot of credit. Jesus, (laughs) come on, Matt, because I think it's handled with divine expertise really really well handled yeah the very next scene is one i've always really liked and i think this is this one of the scenes that's just completely absent from the american version but it's like the science presentation on Mm. how this thing's still around what woke it up and what do we do next and the public is like well you got to tell you got to tell the public so they can say and like you know like if we tell the public about this thing now everyone's gonna freak out and panic and then we're gonna have chaos here in japan uh, you can get away with that back then because there wasn't, you know, the news wasn't as prevalent. You know, we don't have social media like we do. Like now we would know instantly that a Godzilla was here. But now they're able to leak that news out slowly until they kind of understand a little bit more of what they're dealing with. Right. And Yamani's interesting because he's a zoologist. He sees, okay, okay, first of all, this is the find of all finds. This would be the biggest news story ever, first of all. For sure. How did this thing live for so long? There must be something to his survival to not only withstand time, but withstand the H-bomb. 
which is something that has decimated our our countrysides, our two of our cities, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So he sees the science approach of we have to f- figure out what this thing is exactly before we destroy it because there's something in there about you know human survival. I mean, survival of the fittest. I mean, how could we better equip ourselves for the dangers of technology's future that we're going to have to go up against? I want to put you in that room for a minute. Yeah, you okay. right now. Well, you're, you're, you're myself. You, you're in that room. Mm-hmm. And you're hearing this pitch from him about the science and minimal science that they have on this. And it's followed up with, and the next logical step is to further investigate. In that room, Mm -hmm. what does Jesse say? Are you throwing your book at that guy? you throwing your cell phone at that guy? Yeah, I'm probably like, oh my God, this is a terrifying thing. But it's something that's always intrigued me about like urban legends on... Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, like whatever. I was like, if that thing was real and you came across it, hell yeah, it would be scary. But like the years of built up and pent up mystery on what those things are, you would kind of want answers a little bit. You know what I mean? Here you have a Bigfoot, like you don't want to kill it. You kind of want to know, like, what is this thing? Is it uh, just like an evolved this or that? So does it change if it's not Bigfoot and it's Godzilla and a footprint can destroy your city? Versus oh no, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then like, yeah, they're dealing with, but and but they're dealing with something that like they go into in Jurassic Park, which is bringing these animals from the past back for you know a monetary gain. These are creatures we've never seen before. You know what I mean? Of a bygone prehistoric era. So I, I can see the twinge of a scientific fact. Be but this is before. We see the mass destruction this thing's going to make. We don't even know about the atomic breath yet firsthand, only in, in from the survivors of the raft and whatnot. So mm-hmm. while it is a bit foolish to kind of be so stubborn in his in his own right, uh, I think there is some... He sells it well, you know what I mean? Like, he, he sells why we need to study it. It's not just like, we need to study it because we don't kill animals, so to speak. It's it's purely in a survival mechanism. That's only because that guy, by the end of the film, really pisses me off. Mm-hmm. Especially when we get to a month your hand, daughter's hand in marriage, which I imagine we'll probably talk about. Yeah. He's as guilty of all of the scientists in this film, save Sarazawa at yeah. the very end. Mm-hmm. It is, they are very, very proud mm-hmm. of their intellect and their ability in the field of science. Yes. And they are in absolute dire, immediate need to prove it to anyone. And let me emphasize anyone that Mm -hmm. wants to listen at any cost. Yeah. This guy's destroyed this guy, this thing, this animal has destroyed three boats. We know about that because we've seen it happen on screen. So we know about the, the terrible, terrible destruction that's about to befall Japan. And all this guy cares about is studying it. And so my question is how, yeah, are you going to take a scale from this? Like you're an kind of a natural selection idiot. Yeah. You could only study it so much. Like, are you going to put it to <laughs> From sleep a distance? and yeah. put, put it in a biodome like they did Kong? Like, <laughs> right. it would have to be something like that. So, while I do appreciate the admiration to study it, yeah, you're right. How? How do you go about doing that is is never kind of really thought out. But then the, the, there's no time to think of it because let's just kind of get to the next yeah. kind of crux of it, which is Godzilla's landfall on Tokyo, which mm-hmm. is just absolute destruction. I mean, this... Every step is a destroyed building. Every hand swipe is sending the towers down. Fires galore. I mean, if you 
you thought like, you know, a blitzkrieg or bombs being dropped on a city, atomic bombs being dropped was bad. Like this is like that plus more. And so you see this destruct and like I like I said destruction is always very off-putting uh, to me just in general, especially Man of Steel. Maybe that's just cuz they're just like it's just whatever in that movie, but in this I think we see the human side of that, the human ramification. And they're running for their lives. They're trying to put out a fire department, trying to put out fire. Like, what are they going to put out? I mean, they are so up against it at this point. It's literally like bunker down and let's hope we survive the night. And that's it's a bit of a chilling thought. That scene when he unleashes his atomic breath on those 10 people that are standing outside just melts them all down. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. it's they, they are not afraid or Hondo's not afraid in this to show the human fatality when opposed by this large this large titan of nature. Well, talk about the atomic breath. You, you said that was something you like, and you kind of birthed from these very stegosaurus-like scales in his back. That that's the charging or battery component is so far ahead of its time in what the construction of this monster should be and what is Godzilla's most powerful trait. He has a good tail, and he's mostly strong, and he can swim, but that breath is the deal breaker. Mm-hmm. And that's what ends up giving him the edge in most of the monsters that he fights at some sure. level. He's mm-hmm. pretty brawny, and he can he can trade a punch. I'm not saying that, that that's not a piece. But that breath's a big deal because the expanse and the width and the breadth of that, haha, the breadth of that, is so vast, it can do a lot of damage. And he is just unleashing hell on this little town. And we're not exactly sure why at this point. There's mm-hmm. no reason for Godzilla other than maybe his environment is threatened, which I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. And that's what that doctor says to a certain extent. But there's those, maybe it's 10 people, and they are kind of trapped on the entrance to some, what looks like almost a strip mall. Mm-hmm. And he just breathes on them. But when you see him doing it from a distance, it's cool because his scales on the back go full illumination Mm -hmm. and you can see the gathering and the kinetic or potential energy into the kinetic discharge. It's gorgeous. 1954 gorgeous special effect. Really good. Yeah. I'm glad they kind of, because I think that there was discussions to do stop motion, but I kind of like the guy in the suit. You know what I mean? Me too. Like there's a certain kind of art to the way you move and the way you operate. And I told you, uh, so I got the guy's names because they definitely deserve a, a shout out at least. Haru Nakajima and uh, oh, Nakajima and Kats- uh, Katsumi Takuza, two two guys played it. You needed two people because I told you you could be three minutes in this thing and the heat from the inside and then being on a hot set, you pass out. I mean, the actors lost like thirty pounds just being in the suit. It was just physically demanding, and they they figured out how to you know work with that a bit more. They they refined the suit as the series went along, but to them, I mean. That's tough. I mean, you're in a tank. You're in a water tank mm-hmm. for some of this. Yeah. These scale models just kind of creating utter destruction. But let's talk about a couple of these moments that you already brought up. Uh, this is, I'll do, it's in Japanese, so I'll, I'll do my best to, to describe what's being said. Okay, so this is a mother with her three kids just kind of like they're kind of cornered in this just like street by a building here as Godzilla's just 
hellfire on this on this city. And the w- woman says, "We will. We're going to be joining Daddy soon. Mm. We will soon be where Daddy is right now." So Daddy either dying in the bombings before or a soldier in World War II. Mm-hmm. Whew, that yeah. is, that's haunting. Yes, and it's just like it, they've because they fully admitted we're not going to survive this, and it's like those last moment. And then the young kids too is is the ass. So this scene is gone from the American version. That's why I never saw it before. How about that? Uh, but talk about chilling and talk about. I'm always. I have to remind myself. I'm like, is this a sci-fi B movie about a giant lizard? Yeah, it is. But then stuff like this happens, and I'm like, they're aiming for something utterly different with this. It's so serious. It's so morose and and grim at times that they're they're kind of making two different films here. That's that's a very powerful moment right there. And whether it's the fishing mm-hmm. and the lack of fishing and the dependence on that mm-hmm. in a commercial way. You're working through some, or the atomic element or the hydrogen element that is important to Godzilla's attack upon Tokyo. Mm-hmm. There is a, sadly, not for them, but sadly for us in a recognition way, therapeutic piece in this film that they're working through. I'm glad you brought that up because I wrote a note here. Okay. Because this has always been my take on this version of the film because this is nine years removed from. 45? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Honda came on record. He says, I took the characteristics of an atomic bomb and I applied them to Godzilla. I mean, he became yeah. he became a walking weapon, so to speak. But to me, watching this film, as destructive as it's going to get in, as morose as a lot of these moments are, and we'll talk about the final scene because it's not a, like, hip, hip, hooray, we defeated the monster. It's, like, so somber that... It's almost like a cultural coping mechanism of helping this country get over what happened to them, the destruction, the economic destruction, the physical destruction, the emotional toll. And they're able to do that and get out those releases through this film, which is very powerful, Uh, especially nine years. That's nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not a long time from those events. I I can't add anything more to it than what you just said i think it's, but do you kind of feel that hell yes because i've always felt that it's and i don't know if i'm just imprinting that i know it, it and what a kind of an interesting thing for a film to be like a coping mechanism and then you add to it the long-term result of that that's millions of years in the making which is godzilla and that's the effects that this has had on nature mm-hmm. if you apply that to a post 45 japanese existence the effects that have happened in nature with the onset of science as violence. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're absolutely right. And you're not imprinting. It's it's all and how could it not be? Yeah. Living through that. But that's pretty that's pretty powerful. I mean, I'm just from a film standpoint, because you know, film is, you know, I think at its core supposed to be like escapism. And you're mm-hmm. you go to films to escape the horrors of everyday life, especially in that era. You know what I mean? The Hollywood system was essentially around to get people to the films to like not remind them of the terrible things that were happening all over the world at that time. And here they're using that inversely. It's it's escapism for them and it's a big sci-fi monster, but it's also helping them get over that hump, whatever's holding them back. That's that's incredible. Well, art is reflective of life. Mm-hmm. Bill Maher had a really interesting monologue last night and I'm not going to say that I'm always the biggest Bill Maher fan but I thought he was spot on when he was talking about you know Hollywood can you 
throw a little sunshine in some film once in a while right now when you look at the Oscar nominees. Oh, sure, yeah. It's pretty grim. Yeah. Not a whole lot on there that I care to see, but it's definitely there. Well, <laughs> the last year hasn't been entirely one for the ages, shall we say. Absolutely, yeah. And as bad as that is, I think we can draw a like, and I'm just going to say like, and you all can build whatever like means to you, mm-hmm. to a post-atomic era in Japan and the art that embodies those moments. It, it, look, this had to come up, and I don't want to get off on too much of like military history of no, absolutely Dwight D. Not. Eisenhower and, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're, we wouldn't have to get into the ethics of, you know, the decision-making process and all that. I just find it absolutely fascinating that it was done through film, and not just like Akira Kurosawa's, like this mm-hmm. film. It's, it was done in Godzilla. Yeah. A monster film. But you would never know that, you know, watching the Raymond Burr version because it's all underplayed and it's all kind of chopped up a bit. But do you wonder if maybe the reason yeah. that it's played out in a science fiction monster film with this large hulking animal that could never happen yeah. provides a bit yes. of a parachute on the truth as well? Absolutely. The same thing with horror and ghosts, right? Mm-hmm. We're not, the ghost is not going to open this door yeah. in a wedding gown. Yeah. And, you know, throw knives at us or some shit yeah because you build an impossibility in there because the truth is just too Mm -hmm. plain and hard to digest yeah if it was if it was just yeah if it was just bombs being dropped again yeah no way right it's a turn off like there's there's an interesting godzilla's like part therapist in this you're right no you're right you're absolutely right yeah crazy well, now I didn't that, think we'd go down that road. Well, now that Matt and I are thoroughly depressed, let's just add more to that. <laughs> okay. visceral are we sure we're watching a godzilla movie <laughs> they're in no hurry to get out of that scene are they i gotta tell you oh yeah no they're in no hurry to just get there fully just like witness what just happened here right I got, okay so the first time i saw this so this is like summer 08 or 09 and i had just gotten like a really good box set of this not that but like most of the films in the show a collection and I had seen King of the Monsters with Raymond Burt like on Monster Fest, AMC, many times. I, I was very familiar with this first film, but then in the disc it had the original Japanese masterpiece. I was like, I was like, well, I've seen this, haven't I? And so I put it in, you know, on in a summer, a Thursday afternoon at five o'clock. You don't got anything going on that day. I watched it and I was pretty okay up until this. And I was like, wow, like the the, the metaphors on like what they're trying to explain are really. It's this is a different kind of movie than the other one. Mm-hmm. And then it got to that part and I had to stop mm. and I had to kind of get up and like go outside because it like, it really hit me hard. I was just like, wow. Like I was like, I was like, this is supposed to just be a monster film. And they're like, they're really hitting it like with the human component here. Like the, the price of destruction, that little girl, like it's just, that's just ADR fully a little girl crying and it's so powerful. 
And it's, it's also powerful to me because my best friend, one of my best friends growing up, his mother was, uh, or his grandmother was Japanese, mm. actually met her husband during World War II. And then they came over to the States, you know, before, before the end of the war. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time with them growing up and I learned a lot about, you know, Japanese customs and, you know, cuisine. And all, I learned a lot through, through them. That's why Japan's always been like a bucket list travel place for me. Like I'll, I'll get there eventually one day, but like I've always been very fond and appreciative of that community and how well they retain their culture and pass that on to their generations. I mean, we saw it in this film with that crazy story, Sure, but it's, they're always a very proud people and, and, and a very, um, you know, very for, forgiving but I, I kind of grew up with that. So I don't know if it was that experience growing up as a child and then seeing this so far later and seeing the historical ramifications of it. Matt, film doesn't do that to me often, like yeah. where I have to stop and like go outside and get some fresh air because, wow, what a gut punch like that moment was. So so we can talk about maybe a B-list science fiction monster, mm-hmm. but it's A-list human drama. Absolutely. For a lack of context, because I bet most of the people haven't seen the Japanese version of this film. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know. Did you happen to look if they can find the original Japanese yeah, version? Yeah, it's, it's on HBO Max oh, it and the Criterion channel right now. Yeah. This little girl has just witnessed, and I mean little, like sub five, mm-hmm. maybe five, mm-hmm. if maybe, mm-hmm. just watched her mom perish right there on the floor of this triage unit. Yeah. And Yumiko picks her up and carries her off and tells her she'll be back soon. Because yeah. what else are you going to tell her? Yeah, so she's else, lying to her. Lie, yeah. That is also kind of Yumiko. Mm-hmm. She's a bit of a liar in this film. She's engaged in this, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say tawdry love triangle, but yeah. love triangle nonetheless. A 1954's love triangle, yeah. That's in a science fiction B monster movie, Jesse. That doesn't seem to really fit I feel there. like we're talking about a different movie. Like, it, right. it's it's crazy. So then we got to solve the problem at hand. So we've seen Godzilla. We just can't let him do this again because this is a nightmare. And he'll just go one city to the next and nothing can stop him. Mm-hmm. So the horrible secret that she's been harboring is Dr. Sarazawa's, you know, horrible experiment that he's created in his lab. I love his eye patch look. It just makes him more ominous. Yeah. Is this oxygen destroyer? And I tried to remember if they had brought this into some of the newer Godzilla movies. And I just, I don't know if I care to go watch them. Uh, anytime soon to, yeah. to find out but talk about another horrible kind of creation that you know and he's kind of right i mean as mad scientist as he comes off this gets into the wrong hands i mean you could vaporize like an atmosphere with this thing yeah when it's used in just a little fish tank and matt has a hot take on fish <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a pretty animal not, not how beautiful they are Ugh. and matt asked like what do you think of fish and i was like i like to eat them <laughs> I like to look at them, though. I just avoid the question entirely. Yeah. It just eviscerates these fish. It turns them into bones, and then it evaporates the bones entirely. So Nothing left. That in a weapon is, that's that's as powerful as an atom bomb. Mm -hmm. I mean, that can vaporize oxygen that we all thrive on. I mean, the Earth is built on that. I thought about the title Oxygen Destroyer. Mm -hmm. So if you release the Oxygen Destroyer in water, which is H2O, and you destroy the oxygen, what's left? hydrogen right isn't that fucking interesting that Mm -hmm. it's hydrogen at the end of the day that destroys all of these animals again Mm -hmm. in a hydrogen-based world that's birthed on hydrogen bombs and hydrogen bomb testing it's interesting what that one element does you know what i mean how about that yep yeah 
So pretty cool. So like, okay, so then we get like this like crazy love triangle between, yeah, yeah all three of them convene. And he's like, you got to give us that because we the Coast, we got to use that. That's the only thing we got. And he's like, I'm not going to give that to you. And they have a fisty cuffs in there and he's dealt this blow. And it's like, man, Sarazawa, like, I know you don't want this, but what's it going to take for you to kind of realize, you know, the threat at hand? And I'm not going to play the whole thing. I recorded like two minutes of it. I'm just going to play a little bit of it because it does go on for... And we, we get it, but I tried to think, I was like, man, Godzilla, like they've lost their way from time to time in this crazy franchise and more on that in the nightcap. But here, like we are thoroughly going to let you know that we are not okay with what just, what just happened here. national televised like prayer of hope like by this like girls choir uh just kind of they're just like lamenting over the destruction the dead we're not even really given a number on how many people died but i imagine a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you're never gonna find something like that in what we watched last week there's like there's no time for it but it's that's a different tonally different movie i mean here at the genesis of this creation I just love how serious they take it. I mean, there's it's not played for laughs as much as, you know, the, the guy in the radio tower is like, I'm going to die. This is me reporting on it. I will die. <laughs> farewell. And he, yeah, he bids his farewell on air. Like, that's a little silly. And, and some of the, like, and they, them adopting Shinkichi as, like, the son is a bit ridiculous for me. But, mm-hmm. man, they play it so serious. And to them for that, they stuck to their guns. I mean, that's why I always feel like it was human drama first, monster movie second. Well, to back up the effectiveness of this, what did I say during that mm-hmm. when we were watching it? Oh, did you say get on with it or something? Like we that? get it already. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is super grim. The nation is in mourning. Can we be- get back to Sarazawa and the Oxygen Destroyer? Because that's the only hope we have. So let's get on with it because this shit's sad. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, time-wise, the movie's an hour and a half-ish long. Yeah. From... The last, I don't know, 10 minutes of the show have been based in what's a pretty darkly grim second half of the second act. Absolutely. After Godzilla unleashes hell on his first attack on this coastal um, Tokyo, Yokohama place. It's just dealing with good 10, 15, 20 minutes of the effects of that attack. And that's the capstone. Yeah. And that group of girls. Mm Mm-hmm that are sequestered in some chamber. Yeah. Vestal virgins, I don't know, singing. Yeah, it's just, a, I think, a school, I don't know. Lamenting in a prayerful way about maybe there's some hope coming, give us strength. <laughs> Again, relying on tradition, which whether that's we're going to do this dance and then make this bonfire and send this poor girl out to be sacrificed to this Godzilla monster so he won't destroy our city, or whether now it's, this this ritual prayerful moment 
And that's juxtaposed against two men fighting over the use of technology. Mm-hmm. I We call this a B-movie. Yeah. I don't know, yeah, man. It's this hard. is pretty smart now, right? We're in a pretty cerebral space, or maybe that's just you and me making it be like that because the rest is to the other part of that is it's just too starkly dark to just address directly. Well, it's that moment that is the <sighs> light bulb for Sarazawa is like, I have to do something now. Like, for mankind. Because it's interposed with the footage of destruction and people dying in the triage units, and he's just like, oh, my God, like... But he goes on this whole bit, this whole self-righteous bit about if this falls in the wrong hands, then mm-hmm. I'm responsible. And mostly none of that is with any legitimate regard to mankind. It's just the acknowledgement of the holier-than-thou continued science that every one of these scientists or professors in this film becomes so nauseingly mm-hmm. imbued with. Yeah, they got, they got tunnel vision. Well, I may created this greatest invention of all time that's the most powerful, and should it fall into hand, well, just once we've used it, they tell him, once it's once we've used it, it'll be used up and you don't have to worry about it. Well, who's to say that someone won't come along and yeah. tap my divine intellect and, like, fuck you, dude. Like, yeah. get the thing out there and destroy the monster and save your people. Yeah. They're all kind of hateable. A little bit, yeah. 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 They've built them up that way, but, like, it's that moment that, like, it's, like, the turn for him is, like... He like he's so sweaty in that scene. Yeah. He just finally sits down and just like, okay, like, I'll do it, but under my pretenses, which is we'll get to that scene now too. He's like, I'm gonna go down. I'm gonna unleash the thing. And um, Ogata's like, well, I'm coming down too because you're you're not a trained scuba diver. So how far down are we going? And we'll we'll do this together. And you know, we kind of get this this final you know military coast guard mission to go stop the creature while he's dormant right now, mm-hmm. which is underneath the ocean. This scene's always been you know very interesting to me too because you know you got these two guys go down, and Godzilla's just like asleep on a rock, and then I like when he starts walking around down there. You know what I mean? Like he is limited by his height in the depths of the ocean. I mean, not until like, he gets into shallower waters is he going to fully emerge. So. I like seeing him walk around down there as they're like, Shit, get this thing open. We got to kill this thing. Does he know they're there? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if he'd be able, I'm sure he might be able to, to see them, but I don't know if he ever does in, in this sequence. Either, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Ogata goes back up. Sarazawa opens up the oxygen destroyer and we kind of said, he's like, both of these guys are going down there knowing, right? That if they turn this thing on, they're down there, they're dead too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, they should, they should know that if the oxygen's depleted. I mean, they have their tank, but like they need to get out of there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, to Sarazawa's, you know, his mantra of like, I can't let this thing get in the wrong. It always seems like he's been like, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> like he's a like, little bit. He's like, he's like, I'm, he's like, I'll kill myself before I tell anybody about what I've been working on. Like he's, he says. he's like so steadfast on his, his secrets. But um, we kind of get a little bit of that here. That's Ogata calling for Sarazawa to back up. So what Sarazawa said there underwater was like the oxygen destroyer, it's working, like it's like we've succeeded. And then he's like, he's like, now you two can be happy. And so he's I think he's fully aware of like what's going on between the two of them at this point and fully willingly is like 
cuts the cuts the rope or his cord and he's going to go down with this thing too like he doesn't have a place he in like this kind of crazy story of natural selection and like what's mankind's place in this the role of a Godzilla now mm. mm-hmm. he doesn't fit in it anymore no. he doesn't fit in his love triangle and now that his secret is being used he doesn't want it used again he doesn't he, his pawn is off the chessboard in this game as he's let the other two pair off and would allow the natural forces that happen with procreation to kind of, I guess, run their course, and he's mm-hmm. the odd man out. Yeah, He's the aberration of science. Yep. So the reason he doesn't come back up is you need to think about the little man in the fish tank that's the air compressor, like that version of Diver. So he's tethered oh, yeah. to the oxygen tank, and they have to pull the slack line up to get him out of the water. And what he does with a knife is he cuts that slack line knowing that not only will I not be able to breathe anymore, but I'm not coming back up. Mm-hmm. And so he goes down with his invention to let the idea and the technology that he has constructed die at the bottom of the ocean in an oxygen-destroyed way. Yeah. With the creation that he's partially responsible for, not directly, he didn't make Godzilla, but his chosen profession or his interest, his his infatuation with science is what birthed this creature from the tomb that it was happily sleeping or laying dormant in with these H-bomb tests. So I guess he's taking on the mantle of martyr. And I find this Sarazawa character because of that interesting. But even in his death, it's done in such a hubris-filled yeah, way. Absolutely. I kind of feel like, yeah, I'm glad you're down there because there's nothing good that you're going to bring on there. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you, that's that's a just way for you to go. And well, thanks we, and later. Well, we didn't kind of talk. This guy might also be very traumatized and damaged because of the, I mean, the he, war. he has an eye patch because if he lost this eye in the war, I mean, he's kind of gone through the gauntlet already with this mm-hmm. thing. So like, what's more left for him? It's fair. Yeah. He's already going, he's already creating terrible things. Like he, he's not doing science justice in that regard until this moment. Until <laughs> they crown him scientist of the century. <laughs> There's one point that I want to go back to for just a minute. Speaking of the science okay. tests and their roles in this. Mm-hmm. Ogata decides that he's going to go to Yumiko's father and ask for her hand in marriage. And that conversation gets about a sentence. This is maybe 10 minutes before, 15 minutes before the part that we're discussing right now. Mm -hmm. That conversation gets about three syllables in before it goes off the rails. And Yumiko's father turns it. This is the archaeologist, anthropologist, nature science guy. Mm -hmm. And all he can do is... In the moment that this man is trying to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage, all he cares about is the science around Godzilla and keeping this creature that he's fascinated with because he wants to study and how it survived. Which I will add, Mm -hmm. none of the components in a two million year old monster at that size Mm -hmm. are entirely applicable to any piece of mortal man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what is? Yeah. Who marries his daughter? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he shotguns that right away. <laughs> the scientists are hateable in this. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. Because they are part villain. I mean, they're the human they are. They're the human villain in, in this thing. A lot more interesting than the ones last week. And Yumiko finishes up in that with instead of going and telling her dad, you need to listen to what he has to say, mm-hmm. basically crying and saying, we'll try again later when he's not so mad. Mm-hmm. <sighs> She's kind of maddening too. Yeah. And I love that. I love it. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty well done. They're like they like they feel like they feel like real people at the end of the day compared to like the cartoons we saw last week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So Godzilla's to that. Yeah, to, Amen. To yes. the cartoon well cardboard characters last week. Godzilla's deprived of oxygen, and 
you know, submerges to the bottom and then eat husked away into a skeleton and then into a nothing. So let's talk about this because this is on record as being one of the longest run running film franchises of all time. How does this happen when he just died skeleton here? Mm -hmm. I think this is something, uh, you know, worth discussing and they, they touch on it briefly. I'm like, what happens if we continually test these H bombs and these a bombs and, you know, disrupt the natural order of, you know, you know, the undiscovered of the earth, you know, subterranean and, in the earth's crust and, and, and whatnot, like what else more are we going to like unleash? And that becomes the kind of the coup de gras of like the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. But I think like Godzilla is not just one, he's one of many. And so in the subsequent entry, you asked me, where does this go next? It's Godzilla raids again. And he actually emerges from a block of ice. Uh, it's a different creature mm -hmm. and whether be damned if Canon says it's the same Godzilla creature, I say it's impossible because he's a skeleton at the bottom of the ocean. Right. So I think a lineage of there's multiple versions of this species all over the planet. They're just awakened at different states throughout this series. I think it's also fascinating. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he truly can never die. I mean, he can die at some point, but then to be, it's almost like Dr. Who, he's just like replaced by like the next version of who's next in line. I think what that's going to do a little bit later on as the franchise progresses is allow them to really harness the radioactive nature of the creature because if they blow this one to bits through some radioactive power that the lizard's able to harness and use against the villains, that costs him his own mortality. The franchise isn't dead because just dig up another one from some other cave or some other block of ice or mutate it. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty smart way out, actually. And you know what you don't have to worry about? Dialogue, because Godzilla doesn't talk, so you don't have to worry too much about what's the internal motivation in this lizard? Because there isn't really any. No. <laughs> it's just either protect or destroy. Well, I also wonder, too, if they went this way with the ending with full knowledge that we're just making one movie, not knowing what this would turn into. Like, they saw the pop culture impact of how this blew up and people wanted more of it and they wanted more creatures and this and that. Like, the whole booming kaiju genre in Japan birthed Mothra standalone films and Rodan and then team-up films. Like, it became its own thing. But here, I was like, they probably killed them because they didn't think they were going to make another one. They so, were done, yeah. Yeah, they were done until, like, oh, shit, how do we bring them back? Well, I always think, I was like, well, I think there's multiple versions of the lizard. Sure. Yeah. That, there has to be, because you said he's there's nothing left of yeah, him they, at the end of this Yeah, he's, he's a nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh man, this was this was very interesting uh, discussing this film. A couple things, and then I have some questions to ask you. Mm -hmm. We talked about the American film and how it's so significantly shorter, with an additional plot line. Another character yeah. who interacts with the other characters in this film with the he interacts with the back of their heads. <laughs> Body doubles, but what that does, you know, like that film is a very inferior product to what we just watched. But what it did do was expose international audiences, not just here in the states, but England, South America, Russia, like all audiences to this creature. And so that helped birth the legend of Godzilla and helped make him a pop culture icon. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason they wanted more of these films is because like it got exposed internationally too. I think like a seventies rock band might even write a song about him at some oh point. Oh my God. I love that song. <laughs> yeah. Now we don't have any blue oyster cult. That's right. More cowbell. <laughs> Uh, okay, so that's okay. We wanted to talk about that. Oh, the special effects photography lasted longer than the regular shoot of the film. So I mm. think the shoot of the film was like 50 ish days, and the special effects was like 80 something days. Wow. So 
it definitely took a lot of work to get those things to work. But now that we're at the end of this, you know, what's your favorite tasting note of Godzilla? I thought how much fun it would be to be the person in that suit mm-hmm. knocking over the buildings and the little models that they have on set, whether it be walking through phone line or te- uh, electric lines yeah. or kicking over buildings that looked like a lot of fun. And here's the B part argument. And part of it is just because they didn't have the technology to do it. And Japan is a little bit further behind in filmmaking than the United States at the time. Mm-hmm. But the bit when Godzilla picks the train off the track and has it in his mouth. Oh yeah. That's kind of awesome. It's pretty fun. Awesome. Yeah. 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 That's pretty awesome. Good choice. Oh, let's see. I think mine is going to be probably that first emergence of him over the hill. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, they built up to that a lot and that's not even the full reveal, but like when it's all the seedlings of like, gosh, I want to see this thing. I want to see what it can do. I want to see it in all its glory. And you take your time, but that's a great just first reveal over the hill there. It looks great. One of my most, uh, you know, I have that recurring nightmare from time to time of it's college and oh my God, You're it's, late. it's finals week and I haven't been to this class all year. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> How do I pass this exam when I don't even know what's going on in the class? Like once a month, Matt, it happens to me and it's terrifying. I don't have that <laughs> once a month, but I have that sometimes too. I know exactly what you're talking about. And you're just like, oh my God, I haven't been here in, in that one lecture. Yes. Oh yeah, dude. I know. Yeah. I also have another recurring nightmare and it's pretty frightening and it's that Godzilla is real and he's really destroying things around me. And in my dream, he is not to be trifled with. It's actually a a very terrifying imposing presence. Mm. So those happen from time to time. As much as I love these films, it does invade my subconscious too. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we'll have the same one here, but what's the, I think there's two of them. Which one? You take one, I'll take the other. Okay. Oh, I got to take the one, two of the the crying girl because it literally made me stop the movie, go outside, catch my breath, get some fresh air, and then come back and finish the movie like a little bit later. And I never do that. Like there's something about it just kind of clicked and I was like, ah, oh, uh, this is this is kind of an, uh, a bit rough. So mine's the other one. The mom with her three children huddled <laughs> in her arms saying we're about to see daddy again soon. Fully admitting that the end is near. Anytime that kind of stuff happens in film, not to be mm-hmm. too nightmare proper to what you just said, mm-hmm. but I can't but help think of my own family. Mm-hmm. And like if I have one cause left before I leave the earth, it's to make sure that my little one can have a minimal amount of bullshit that she has to deal with in her life. That's literally my job now. And watching that, knowing that probably through no fault of his own, he left them in that regard. And then in these final moments, ugh, that's what the mom is using to quell the terrible horror that her children are having to face this fucking lizard. Oh, God. it's well, that is rough, very Jesse. rough. I, you know, what makes me think about it too is, you know, I did a deep dive this week too into Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like, it was a very depressing research week. We got to do some comedy cast here pretty soon. Yeah, man. I think yeah, maybe we had that in the pipeline here. But no, I still love this film. Uh, just the sheer number of civilian casualties throughout the war, but then specifically in those two bombings, I see that in this scene too. I know it's nine years removed, but I'm like, man, these people, I know this is a fake lizard, but like they've been through a lot. Yes. Like what else left and them admitting death, admitting death in any film is that's hard to swallow, but with three kids in tow and you're just, don't look. Yeah. Rough. 
and there's nothing you can do about it. No, yeah, can't yeah. tell them to hide or run. It's just curtains. Just wait. Yeah, Ugh. that yeah, that's terrible. Ugh. Who's the master distiller on Godzilla? It's got to be Honda, the director. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit of an interesting piece which you kind of told me, so I don't want to say it, so you can tell about it later. But where the series goes immediately and where it goes after that is, I think, very clear that this man at this time was able to take these larger-than-life gargantuan creatures and make them stand for something more than just hulking presence on screen. And to further that, in an entertaining way where people wanted more and more and more. Absolutely. It's a fine art to take mm-hmm. something as ridiculous as a large atomic breath-breathing lizard, make that stands for something that's socially conscious and, and aware, and then make it entertaining to him. I have to give it to Honda, too. I mean, yeah. he, he had screenplay credit, directed this thing. He directed the Mothra standalone, the Rodan standalone, came back for Godzilla Kong, and many more injuries in this series. And like I said, the next subsequent entry totally goes off the rails instantly. So you kind of see, like, hey, like we're dealing with inferior uh, producers here. But just the influence of that, you think of, like, th- these giant things. I mean, that's Godzilla. That's Ultraman. That's uh, Voltron. That is Transformers. It is Power Rangers. Yep. It's Pokemon to that extent. I mean, the influence of what this birth, not only in the special effects realm, but, like, pop culture from Japan and the United States is remarkable. Perfectly said. Yeah. Yep. How are you going to rate and grade Godzilla? <laughs> We have Rocket Well Call, Rocket Well Call, Single Barrel and Top Shelf. Let me go first, Matt, because yeah. I've actually thought about this a lot. Um, mostly because you and I have been uh, watching a lot of a lot of shit recently, mm-hmm. uh, and the year is young. I know we're going to talk about some really good films coming up here in the next few months. This is easily the best film we've covered in 2021. Easy, yeah. This is Top Shelf. Easy for me to 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 give it that. It's my favorite Godzilla film. It's not the most joyous Godzilla film. I mean, there's they have a lot more fun with it as they get along, but it's I like how serious they take it, uh, the ramifications of the actions of the humans and the lizard involved. Um, it's very good filmmaking. Like you said, some of the things are laughable now, the, the model making, but like I said, it has a certain charm to it, and the humans are despicable in their own right, but... Man, this it, it it hits hard. Uh, it's and I don't say that you know with a lot of sci-fi B films. And you're right, we can't call this a B film. This is this is a really well done film. I agree. Occasionally, for me, sometimes the single barrel rating means more than the top shelf rating because mm-hmm. it speaks to the uniqueness of it. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm going to go with this. It's a it's a masterpiece. But the first across the finish line in a franchise that's going to have 33 entries. Good right. start. Yep. With what it tried to do and what it was built from and how smart, if you choose to go there, we're talking about Iron Man and Rocky mm-hmm. and all of those beginning pieces and franchises yeah. that set the legacy forward for what may not be like, let me use Rocky as an example on this. Rocky doesn't have the best boxing of any of the films, but it's the best film of any of the films. Rocky kind of has a bit of Godzilla in him because, like, the creation of like Ghidorah is similar to like the emergence of Clubber Lang. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're right. It's like let's we got to find these interesting villains to pin him up against. Almost sounds like you're setting me up for something here. Maybe. So yeah, top shelf for me. No, single. Sorry, single barrel for me. Top Good. shelf for you. 
Good to that. Yeah, to, to, to that, to those ratings. And I can't state enough, if you've never seen this version of the... If you've only seen Raymond Burr, Lars Tharwald from Rear Window going from makeshift set to makeshift, and you've never seen this version, it's two totally different experiences, really. Don't watch the American one. Watch the Japanese one. Yeah. Get the full effect of what it was supposed to be before it was defanged by American cinema. Yeah. To that. To that. To that. So cheers. cheers. Let's wrap this up with a nightcap. Might be the most somber episode we've done before. <laughs> Jeez, I know. This has been something. People are going to look at that and go like, oh my gosh, they did Godzilla. That's going to be so much fun and leave needing a therapist. <laughs> hey, call Godzilla. He's good at it, apparently. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's wrap this up with the nightcap. 33 films in. My God, like to get your franchise to that number is you deserve a cheers in, in that regard already. But my question to you, Matt, is there's so many film franchises available out there. Is there one that could make it to 33, whether it ever does in reality or realistically could, which franchise could you see making it to that number? So I have an honorable mention. Do you want me to save or do you want me to prep before I give the answer Uh, with the honorable mention? Yeah, I have some honorable mention. We'll do those at the end. Okay, so I'm going to take for the film that has one really solid entry and several that range from so-so to get your refund at the ticket counter. It's Indiana Jones. Mm. And the reason I would say that is how many relics and cultures and adventures can you get into as many as you want? Absolutely. At some point you have to take into account, man, I'm just tired of this. It's just too much, but I don't think there can ever be too much adventure mixed with, well-timed comedy to make the adventure and the tension in those kind of thrilling moments, all that more and the history and interest around culture and relics or symbology Mm -hmm. is infinite. So I think there's one really good Indiana Jones and then maybe one and a half that are okay. And then the rest is terrible. And I know they've got another one they're working on right now, Uh which from what I read this week sounds almost just disastrous, but we'll see. I hope I'm wrong. That's where I'm going to go, Indiana Jones. Man, I've been wanting them to like expand on that for years. And I think the biggest mistake is, you know, after Last Crusade and Spielberg and Harrison Ford saying, this is it, like we're kind of done, like recasting, new director, and go the James Bond route with mm-hmm. that character. I mean, mm-hmm. I know it's weird. It'd be weird to say, see someone else other than Harrison Ford to play that character. But like, it was kind of the same with Sean Connery as James Bond. It just, it takes some coaxing to get familiar with a different actor. And you know, what's cool about that is those actors become synonymous with like those eras. Like there's Roger Moore fans out there that like love him because they grew up with his version of Bond films. You're looking at one. Yeah, exactly. That's me. They could have, they, they can, they can still do that with Bond. Mm-hmm. They just have to get over the hump that Harrison Ford's the only one that can play this character. Like, I, I think the series is a little Biblic heavy and they haven't tackled the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Shroud of, the Shroud of Tamarind so much. 
that'll works. Atlantis, like it, yeah, Atlantis. You, you pick a relic, the city of gold. Yeah, they could you could do so many things with that. The Rosetta Stone. I mean, you just there you go. Yeah, you could. There's an infinite number of possibilities, Great. and I'm interested in all of them. Great choice. I love I just them. don't want alien skulls. Oh no, I don't either. But even that could have been okay <laughs> had they done it right. But it wasn't done right. That movie's a disaster for many reasons. <laughs> it is. All right, we'll save that for... No, we won't. We'll never tell that story. No, we should. But oh. like, no, because don't you remember? I saw... We went. We both went to the midnight screening. I Not do. together. No. I just ran into you in the lobby, and I'll never forget Matt's words were, that was kind of bullshit. <laughs> I was glad it was over. If it wasn't for the show, I would have left. Oh, my God. When the when, yeah, the, when, the, when the Dark Knight trailer before the film gets more applause than the end of the movie, you know something didn't click for the audience. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> we'll do that movie because there's a story to be told there, but great choice. Oh, man, it, that made an, one of my honorable mentions for sure. Awesome. Let me hear yours. I'm dying. Well, you know, it's a franchise I know and love with two good entries and a lot of mediocrity and a lot of shit. Any guesses? Star Wars? <laughs> no. I mean, Star Trek? I mean, they could possibly make it. If they could get out of the BS that is the origin stories and get on to getting this thing to earth and expanding on the, the military aspect and the science aspect and the mm. crossover mm -hmm. it's alien alien. Yeah. They can't get out of the way of trying to explain how this thing started when the adventure is on earth and getting this thing to places where it shouldn't be. Uh, I could easily see that thing getting to multiple entries in the franchise, but they got to get out of their own way first. And maybe that's getting Ridley Scott out of the way. <laughs> yes, that is. Yeah. Like, I, I have in the back room over there, I have these alien uh, omnibus uh, collections of, like, novels that have been written. And there's seven volumes with three stories in each. That's 21, 21 right there. films right there. Mm -hmm. They got a TV show coming out, I think, this at the end of this year or next year on FX. Mm. So I want to see they, what they're going to expand because the mythology of the creature itself, we've gone on length of how cool that is. Mm -hmm. Give us more of that. You know, find ways to, you know the military aspect and weaponizing it and getting it on earth and alien school. <laughs> like you can just have fun with it. Mm -hmm. Oh, but man, freaking, you know, Jesus and the origin of the engineers just makes me yawn. Yeah. <laughs> Bad mistake there. Good choices. You too. What's your honorable mention? I had two. Okay. So one, we've talked about it a million times. That's why I didn't choose it as the conjuring. And the reason I didn't go with that with all of the opportunities that presented in the basement is I thought the Indiana Jones and the relics and the different cultures and geography that that offered seemed to be a little less repetitive than what the conjuring could offer. Now, that being said, mm -hmm. I am in first in line for the next conjuring film that comes out, but we'll be first. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's long, that's position one B where Indiana Jones might be one a, if it's any good in terms of the, the flight question. The other one, too, is Conan. I think that that offered a lot of possibility. You have to have the right guy. And Jason Momoa, for as much as I like him as Aquaman, I don't think was a good choice to sort of Ooh. carry on the franchise. But that had a lot of places to he go as well. He did play Conan, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. It didn't work. Um, and Schwarzenegger's obviously too old. Unless you want to go older Conan on the throne, handing the mantle to son and carrying on that way. I think there was a lot of room left that they didn't tackle in that series as well. Good choice. Who doesn't like swords and sandals and monsters? And that's just, that's just summer popcorn fun. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. If that's what it's supposed to be. And you let it be that sure. Not a melodrama. Kong versus Godzilla. Mm -hmm. and All it, right. Let's hear your honorable mentions. Uh, I 
Friday the Thirteenth. Oh yeah, of all of them, that's the one you're going to name. I think though, I think that's the one that they've had the most fun with. Wow. In terms, because you know, Halloween, we haven't gotten there yet. But we'll get there. Is going to go off the rails so quick. Yeah. With the cult of Thorn and all that bullshit, uh, so they've lost their way many times. And Freddy's gone into stand-up comedy and his but like jason always seemed the most you know consistent with me okay some of those films aren't good but like they they always understood what they were making and like i always thought people tended to like them at the end of the day they had fun with them you're right so i think part of getting to 33 and what godzilla's good at is having fun with it mm-hmm. um so that was one james bond's probably the closest to getting sure. to 30 they're at 25 they'll get there um uh, and a similar thing i mean it's always like these films, and I told this to you on the phone, it's crazy that Godzilla made it to 33 because every film is essentially the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, they create a new thing or he comes from space or they birth him in a lab and then Godzilla's got to show up to put order into balance. Yeah. And then he goes back to the sea. There's your film. And then they made 33 of them. <laughs> like, right. The formula is so simple and James Bond fits into that realm too. It's like mm-hmm. mission of the, the week, so, so to speak. Uh, any consideration to John Wick at all? Yeah, that's what I was going to just say was John Wick. Now, can you do it without... It's so tied to his character and Keanu. Like, if they just kind of went around that, could you could probably still tell stories built around the Continental and just they would have to be different hitmen. And my evidence would be Atomic Blonde. You just took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Once you've established the Continental and all of the people in there, you have as many stories as you have rooms in the Continental. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. One more. Do you think the Mission Impossible franchise can continue on once Tom Cruise decides he can't hang outside of airplanes? <laughs> yes, and it can't happen soon enough. I'm over Tom Cruise, so yeah. let's move on to somebody. Well, we got one more with him coming out at least next year or this year. You know who I think has the potential to be a really good and young enough action hero to do it for a good decade? is Zac Efron. I think he's got the look and the chiseled jaw, and I think he's got enough just natural charm on screen to where I think that he has a place where that's a possibility. I know you're probably pulling and hoping for Clive Owen, but I don't think that's going to happen, Jesse. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I think you kind of think that happened for Zafra. Well, it better happen for him soon, I guess, because like he's older than me. <laughs> so yeah, well, you're still young. Yeah. Older, um, young, uh, younger than Godzilla. Uh, but <laughs> no, yeah, this was, yeah. So many different franchises can kind of fall. Like we, we specifically said Marvel, is excluded because they're going to get there next year or the year after. Right. And that's kind of hard to get like, that's such, that's a different beast altogether. Like these are like standalone. They're not really, you know, co- concurrent with like an ongoing story. You know, Bond did that a little bit with like his wife and Blofeld and mm-hmm. Casino Royale a little bit too. But a lot of the films in those iterations are at least they're just one-offs mm-hmm. and there's something to that as well. Yeah. Excellent. I hope, though, I hope that, like, after I pass, that they're still making Godzilla movies all the way up to that point. I hope that Lizard, you know, just finds ways to keep surviving in different iterations. Heck yeah. So next week, you know, we didn't talk about today, and maybe this is a conversation for next week, the different eras of Godzilla that are all kind of built around, you know, the emperor of the time in Japan. So this was the Showa era. This is 1954. The 74? 75? 75, yeah. So next, we're going to go into the Heisei era. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, my apologies if I'm not. But this is my favorite era of Godzilla films. All right. They've refined the suitmation. He looks crazy. The models look amazing. And the villains are on point. And we're going to talk about one of the other well-regarded fa- fan films in this series. And that's Godzilla versus Destroya. 
or Godzilla versus Desustroya. Mm-hmm. I've heard it pronounced two different ways, so I'll say it. I'll say it both, but. It's actually the last film in this version of the era, and it has a kind of the definitive closing of the book of the character for this version. It's a lot of fun. You've never seen it. This is going to be raw for you, but we're going to have some fun with with this particular film. I can't wait. Mm-hmm. 95. So we've got some big tech working here and lots of special effects at a very bombastic era during that period. So this is going to be cool, and the monster looks great that he fights. Excellent, excellent. Well, to that, you know, uh, hit us up on any of our social media platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. If you're on those listening, downloading, we appreciate it. Leave us a rating and review. It's how other people find uh, podcasts. We're just very gracious for all the support. Oh, my gosh. Bourbon's making me making me gassy a little bit. Too much oxygen destroyer. Yeah, the too much oxygen destroyer in my throat right now. But we're very grateful for, you know, all the listens, the downloads, the Patreons, it's, it's just absolutely awesome. We're talking about Godzilla, you know what I mean? Like That's this awesome. is this is just like a childhood dream of mine. I mean, I should I should really go find my old Godzilla figurines and we could take a picture of them with with the bourbon because I still have them. That's awesome. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> well, I'll find them. Okay. Well, cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to get going. I got to go find a scientific cure for hungerness because I am starving. I forgot to feed the fish before I left the house, so I'm worried, but I want to make sure I put the right fish food in the tank and not an oxygen destroyer. No, bring the fish. We'll cook them. I like eating them, as I've established. As long as we don't have to look at them. Two birds, one stone. You got it. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Films for exclusive bonus episodes plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Godzilla is property of Toho and Toho Studios, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>